Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. How are you doing, Chris? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Best-selling author Aaron Meyer is our guest. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with another all-time high from Netflix. The streaming video giant added 8.5 million global subscribers in the fourth quarter. That is 2 million more than Wall Street was expecting. Shares of Netflix up 15% this week, Ron, and hitting a new high. Hello, Queen's Gambit, which I loved, by the way. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Definitely exceeded expectations. But, you know, interestingly, that 8.5 million subscribers are in line with what we saw in the fourth quarter of 2018 and 2019, which means things are probably returning more to back to normal um, versus what we saw happen in the early stages of the pandemic, where they saw a flood of new subscribers come in because we all had really nothing to do but stream and, and watch TV. Um, so management is is you know kind of tempering expectations. They said investors should expect just six million subscriber additions in the first quarter as it continues to adjust to that pull forward of subscribers earlier in 2020. And I think I should note you know there, there's nothing wrong with pull forward. Sometimes when we discuss pull forward, we talk about it in terms of a negative, but Getting money earlier than you expect to get money can be a wonderful thing, especially if you have a sticky business like Netflix with high retention rates. So, kudos to them for pulling in money quicker than they anticipated, obviously, for a, a tragic reason, but it did help their business. They passed the 200 million subscriber mark for the first time, and this is really what I think investors are reacting to. Management said its free cash flow will be close to break-even in 2021, and that will allow them to stop relying on debt to fuel its growth. They've got $8.2 billion in cash. They've got an untapped credit line. They will no longer need external financing, and they're actually considering stock buybacks. So, um, their, their investors are applauding that, for sure. I'm glad you mentioned that last part, because that's the question I have. I think it's great that they don't see the need to raise more capital. And I think you're right. That's why the stock reacted the way that it did. They haven't bought back shares since 2011. If you're a shareholder, do you want them buying back shares at this valuation? <laughs> well, I certainly wouldn't have wanted them to do it um, for the last you know nine or 10 years, where reinvesting capital into this business to create content was essential, as it will be going forward. So, I'm actually not convinced that they're not going to need external financing ever again. We'll keep an eye on it. Um, you know, stock's been stock's been lofty, heftily priced for quite some time. If they want to do selected buybacks, fine. But I, I as a shareholder, would probably not want them to use capital that way. Keep keep your powder dry. Invest in content. Keep growing the business. It's really not necessary for to, to institute stock buybacks at this point in time. From entertainment to surgical robots, fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected for Intuitive Surgical. Shares falling just a little bit, Jason. It's not a cheap stock. It almost never has been. So I'm assuming at least a little bit of this sell-off we saw had to do with the valuation. 
Well, I mean, let's be clear here, man. I mean, surgical robots really sounds pretty entertaining. So, I mean, maybe there's a partnership there. I'm not sure. Um, Intuitive Surgical is a a phenomenal business. I mean, this is a a wonderful business, first mover in its space. It's done really well uh, through this current situation. Um, and I think that while it's, it's still primarily a US-centric business, we certainly are seeing the benefits of its global reach. Um, the fourth quarter revenue for 2020 was $1.33 billion. That was up 4% from a year ago. Uh, non-GAAP earnings up incrementally, but the balance sheet is just... This kind of fits in with that Jamie Dimon uh, fortress principles, right? They have a fortress balance sheet with just under $7 billion in cash and short-term investments. And so, with Intuitive Surgical, it boils down to getting those Da Vinci robots into hospitals and then selling uh, the instruments that go along with it. And and so, we look at things like procedures. Uh, fourth quarter procedures were up 6% percent worldwide versus the fourth quarter a year ago. They did place 326 more systems. Now, that was down a little bit from a year ago, but they grew overall the DaVinci system placement to just under 6,000 systems now placed. They are seeing impacts from COVID. It's been very regional, what they've noted in the call. It is not the same everywhere. And in regard to the system placement going forward, and perhaps some of some of the trepidation in the market today is is based on this. They saw a lot of budget exhaustion towards the end of the year, money being spent to sort of exhaust those budgets. But the budget setting for 2021 is a bit more nebulous. The hospitals are just not quite sure exactly how to allocate all that money. So there may be a little bit of holding off towards the back half of the year. And another interesting thing they did note the average selling price for these robots was down slightly. Part of that was due to a lower mix of systems placed in places like China and Japan. But they've also introduced, and this is really interesting, they've Introduced these extended use instruments, which are really great for customers. It's going to play out on the company's financials a little bit negatively, but ultimately, it is the right thing to do for customers. I mean, it is going to make doing business with Intuitive Surgical a little bit easier. It's going to extend those relationships. So, I think it's good long term thinking for this business. And we remain to really like this company for the long haul. They just continue to innovate and do tremendous things in the space. You know, it's interesting. It's almost opposite of the pull forward we were talking about with Netflix, where folks not only delayed purchasing the Da Vinci system um, during during COVID, but many people delayed elective procedures yeah. that the Da Vinci um, would you typically take care of. So we could actually see a spike, I think. Um, in in kind of those delayed or, or postponed um, purchases and procedures, once we truly get to the other side of the vaccine, it'll be interesting to watch. I think that's very fair to say. IBM's fourth quarter revenue fell more than Wall Street was expecting. And in retaliation, Wall Street sold off the stock. Shares of Big Blue falling 10% on Friday. You tell me, Ron, how bad is it? You know, revenue clearly disappointed. Earnings in and of themselves weren't so bad, but I think people were really disappointed um, in what they saw, with sales being down 6.5% overall. That's the fourth straight quarter of declines. All main segments were were weak. Uh, Software, which is their biggest segment, was down 4.5%. But within that segment, the cloud and data platform uh, uh, division grew 9%, and that was led by Red Hat, which you'll recall that they uh, acquired uh, back in 2018 for $34 billion. Red Hat was actually up 19%. So, there was some some interesting growth there. Global tech was down 5%. Global services down 3%. Their systems business down 8%. So, 
Red Hat, the, the really um, the only bright shining spot here, and that's exactly the reason that they're spinning off the managed infrastructure services units so they can focus on cloud. But you know, there's a lot of competition in this space. Perhaps you've heard of Microsoft and Amazon, so a couple <laughs> little companies that uh, kind of dominate there. Um, perhaps they can differentiate themselves. They're they're using what they call a hybrid model, which is a combination of on-premises storage and cloud storage. Uh, I'm not sure that actually gets it done. But we are seeing growth in Red Hat, so growth is growth. So um, if they can continue that, then perhaps they can be an unlocking of value as a result of the spinoff. Shares of Bank of America falling a bit this week, despite fourth quarter profits coming in higher than expected. Jason, we talked recently about uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, um, led by Jamie Dimon. Uh, you and I were talking earlier this week. It sounds like you think that maybe B of A and Brian Moynihan, not quite in that class, but maybe a close second. Yeah, and maybe that's just due to time spent. Uh, Jamie Ty Jamie Dimon has, has certainly been in his position with J.P. Morgan a little bit longer than than Mr. Winnan has with Bank of America. But but yeah, he's in that same class, I think, uh, and it shows. I mean, it, it's a bit of a trick to really square these results up in the, in the release because they referred to one of the worst economic environments in modern memory. And yet they finished up the year stronger than before the health crisis, and and I think that's just fascinating to sort of think about. Uh, but we've seen similar trends with Bank of America that, that other banks have reported. Deposits were up 23 percent, loans down two percent. Uh, they did grow deposits by 361 billion dollars, and. And given the stimulus and what they refer to as the velocity of money, or essentially the rate at which money is exchanged here in the economy, they feel very good about the deposits that they have, and it puts them in a good position going forward. They're able to continue returning capital to shareholders. Uh, around 4.8 billion slated between buybacks and dividends in the coming quarter. And I, you know, again, one of the big stories for these banks recently has been reserve releases, and they were they were putting a lot of money aside. In case of loans that were written off, they were able to release $828 million in reserves here over the quarter, which certainly benefited the bottom line, along with expenses declining around $474 million from the previous quarter. And so you couple that with a very strong wealth management business, record client balances of more than $3.3 trillion, up 10%. Uh, they are really doing a lot of great things. And just a couple of quick notes here on the digital front, too. They now have 39.3 million active digital banking users. That's up 3%. 30.8 million active mobile banking users. That was up 6%. In Zelle, I mean, man, we talk a lot about PayPal and Square, but Zelle, 12.9 million active users sent and received 157 million transfers worth $43 billion. Chris, that was up 65% and 79% respectively. So, hey, they're getting it done in all sorts of ways here at Bank of America. Good, good quarter. Coming up, one of Google's moonshots has officially been grounded. Details coming up, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Intel's fourth quarter report was helped by stronger sales of personal computers than expected. But shares of Intel flat over the past week, Ron, didn't really boost the stock. 
Yeah, results not great. They they did beat relatively low expectations, and they did increase guidance, and they did increase the dividend by five percent. So they're making some moves here to try to appeal to investors, but uh, investors are not impressed. Um, revenue down one percent. Data center group down sixteen percent. But as you mentioned, the PC-based client computing group was the highlight, up nine percent. That's by far the biggest segment of this company. So interestingly, they did put up some growth there, but their operating margins. Narrowed, their earnings fell, but they were significantly higher than expected. As we talk about, it's always an expectations game here. So, although earnings were down, they did beat. As far as the stock selling off, I think the main thing that's going on here is that incoming CEO Pat Gelsinger said Intel would focus on regaining the company's lead in chip manufacturing. He said, I'm confident the majority of our 2023 products will be manufactured internally. Investor did not want to hear that. In fact, some have been calling for that business to be spun off or sold. Um, that was not welcome news um, for the investor base. And I think, you know, this, the stock sells off as a result. We've got a deal in the laser industry. Lumentum is buying Coherent in a cash and stock deal worth $5.7 billion. Shares of Coherent up 35%, while shares of Lumentum fell in the wake of this deal. Jason, Wall Street thinks Lumentum paid too much, but I get the sense that you don't. Well, I mean, <laughs> they probably paid a little bit more than they had to, but I do think we are seeing a lot of consolidation in the space uh, these days with these lofty valuations that begets those high prices. And I'll get to that in a second. But in regard to the actual deal, I mean, this, as you mentioned, this is about Lumentum getting coherence laser business. And, and Lumentum is the market leader in what we call vertical cavity surface emitting lasers, VCSEL. And that's really a part, an important part of the the entire uh, 3D sensing market, and as we as these devices move towards more uh, sensing and whatnot, uh, but they have a small part of their business which is focused on lasers. This is going to give them a much bigger part of their business that focuses on lasers. Uh, the coherence photonics and laser business uh, focuses on microelectronics, precision manufacturing, aerospace defense markets. It is a big deal. Five point seven billion dollars in cash and stock uh, that values coherent at around fifty seven times EV to EBITDA. Now, that's reflective, though, of less than normal results given the current state of affairs. And for Coherent, I mean, this is a business with 75% of sales done outside of the US. And I think that Lumentum, it's an interesting situation there. They make about 26% of their money from Apple, at least as recorded in 2020. And that relationship is going to continue. So it diversifies them away from that relationship a little bit, which is nice. But back to the valuations, I mean, when we look at the consolidation in the space here recently, NVIDIA acquiring ARM, AMD acquiring Xilinx, Marvel. Acquiring Infi, now Lumentum acquiring Coherent. The interesting commonality in all four of those deals stock and cash deals. These companies are using their stock prices, their lofty prices, as a form of cheap currency. I like that in this case. It expands the balance sheet, it lets them be a little bit more bold on those offers. And I think, long run, this is a complimentary deal that should work out well. Shares of Procter & Gamble down a bit this week, despite the fact that second quarter revenue grew 8%. Ron, help me out. P&G makes products for the home that everybody needs them. They do have some pricing power. I'm a little surprised this stock hasn't done better over the past 12 months. Yeah, strong quarter. They did increase guidance. Now, it's it's not a high growth business, so you can't 
pay up too much for this company. Um, so even when when you do see a nice run, it'll it tend to, to pull back if, if the growth it just doesn't present itself. Net sales up eight percent. That's a good number. You know, it was led by home care, which is up twelve percent, and healthcare up nine percent. As typically, you know, we're all home and uh, stuck uh, still because of the pandemic. The rest of the segments did well too. Five or six percent growth in each of them. Again, not stellar numbers, not not technology kind of numbers, but but solid margins widened. Core EPS is what they call their adjusted EPS number, which uh, adjusts for some things up fifteen percent. So all 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 is good. Earlier this month, interestingly, the FTC put a stop to P&G acquiring a women's razor maker named Billy, and that's to, for competition purposes. P&G already owns Gillette, Venus, Braun. So an, an interesting thing to note there. But they're going to be buying back stock. They're they're continuing to return um, lots of money in dividends. They're a dividend aristocrat. Yield at 2.4 percent. It's it's a wonderful company. It's just not a gangbuster growth company. Guys, we've talked before about Alphabet's other bets division. This week, Google's parent company cashed in their chips on one of those bets. Loon, the company that provides internet service via hot air balloons, is being shut down. The company said in a statement, "The road to commercial viability has proven much longer and riskier than hoped for." Jason. If the folks at Google can't make this work, I don't think anyone else should even try at this point. Probably not. Probably not. Um, I, you know, I think this is honestly what makes the other bet segment and their moonshot so darn interesting and compelling, though. I mean, they they know that most of these ideas aren't going to work out in their original form, but the lessons gleaned, the ideas that are born from these ideas, can be compelling. And so, if you look at the other bets, let's look at the other bet segment just big picture. In 2019, brought in 600. $59 million in revenue. That was actually up 11% from the previous year, but the operating loss was $4.8 billion. I mean, this is not a part of the business geared towards immediate profitability. I guess one could argue maybe it's not even geared towards long-term <laughs> profitability, but you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I, I think this Loon, this Loon concept is interesting. I mean, they launched it back in 2013. Seems like a lifetime ago, and certainly things have changed. Uh, but but it did open up some iteration, though, in a new project they're working on now called Project Tara, which is trying to bring connectivity to underserved places via optical communications, or essentially beams of light. They got this optical communications data, these lessons from this uh, this this Loon project. So. You know, maybe this didn't work out, but maybe it gets them to to another place where they can serve the world in a better way. I like that they're trying, Ron. Sounds loony to me. <laughs> Jason Bozer, Ron Gross. We'll see you later in the show, guys. Up next, we're going to go inside the offices of Netflix with best-selling author Aaron Meyer. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Netflix is becoming known not just for great entertainment, but for great corporate culture as well. Aaron Meyer is a professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD, one of the largest graduate business schools in the world. Last year, she and Reed Hastings co-authored the New York Times bestselling book, No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. Recently, she talked with Motley Fool tech analyst Tim Byers about several key topics in the book, including feedback. 
In the workplace, a lot of us don't enjoy giving feedback. It has to do with a section of the brain called the amygdala. Professor Meyer explains. The amygdala is very focused on making sure that you don't get kicked out of the tribe, right? Because of course, you know, our, our humanness makes us look for safety in numbers. Uh, so when you give someone feedback, or if I receive feedback, my natural reaction, like you tell me you don't like, maybe you say, oh my gosh, Aaron, your, your answers were way too long <laughs> in our interview. Well, then my amygdala starts sending off a siren, right? Saying, oh my gosh, Tim's going to kick me out of the group, right? And my response is then either fight or flight. Either I defend yep. myself. It's not true, Tim. My answers were very concise. Right? Yep. Or, I, or I flee. I think I'll never talk to that guy again. <laughs> right. right. Um, so we all know that as we all know that if we give honest feedback, that there's always that fight or flight reaction that may kick in to the person that we're giving feedback to. Yet we also all know that if we give feedback, honest feedback, that it ups the performance of those around us. One piece of uh, study showed that 72% of employees across the U.S., wish they got more feedback and feel that they would do a better job if they got more feedback. Um, so the question I think is then, okay, if we're bought into that and we're hoping to create uh, an environment of feedback, what can we do in order to actually make it happen? Yeah. And I, I saw a couple of very interesting mechanisms at Netflix. The first one is very simple, which is that at Netflix, feedback is often on the agenda. <laughs> So if you have first thing on the agenda, right? Either the first or the last. Either it's first okay, or first last. or last. Got yeah. it. Um, so if you and I meet monthly, Tim, and that doesn't mean that I'm your boss or you're my boss. Maybe we're just colleagues, right? Yeah. But um, if we meet monthly, then likely we put feedback on the agenda ahead of time. And when we get to that, I know you're going to tell me something that I can do to up my performance. And I'm going to tell you something you could do to up your performance. Uh, there's also just feedback meetings that are often randomly on the, on the agenda. So that's a very important mechanism. Because most of us will choose not to give feedback unless the right moment arises, right? Yep. Yep. But when it's on the agenda, suddenly I'm like, okay, well, this is that opportunity. And the other thing they do, which I have to say, I just thought was absolutely crazy when I first heard it. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, why would you do that? <laughs> they, do these, um, they do these 360 feedback dinners this is amazing. You have to, yeah, let's talk about this because this is like bananas. It's completely <laughs> bananas. Yeah, I, I, I love this. Let's get into this. What they do is on a, on an, no, let me say there's no rules and process at Netflix basically. So that doesn't mean that you have to do it, right? It's not a rule, but most managers on a, maybe an annual basis or so, um, set up a 360 feedback dinner where they go out with their team for several hours, usually in the evening over a meal. And during that meal, like I'm up first, right? Uh, so we go around the table and each person at the table tells me what they feel I should do differently, right? Yeah. And, and then we move on to the next person. And, you know, I guess maybe like you, I was like, when I heard that, I thought, well, what's the point, right? Like, why do you have to drag my weaknesses out in front of everybody? feels like a firing squad. <laughs> Couldn't you tell me in a quiet corner? Yeah. 
Um, I actually came to see that this is a very interesting mechanism. And I actually started doing it even with my own teams at INSEAD, because when one person gives you feedback, you never know, is it about that person or is it about me? Right? Mm -hmm. But when you're together as a group like that, and you know, you all know you've come together with the one goal of helping the others succeed, right? That's my only goal to help you to be more successful, right? So then we go around and we start with you, Tim, and you say, well, Aaron, I think your answers are way too long. Please be more concise. <laughs> and then we move to the next person. And Sally says, you know what? I totally disagree with Tim. I love your answers and I wish you'd talk more, right? <laughs> and so we, we learn as we go around, right? What feedback is just about some individual? And then yeah. what's the feedback that everybody on the team thinks I need to be doing differently? So I actually yeah. found people said that that was the greatest developmental moment of their lives, getting that feedback, having those, those feedback dinners. So it's crazy, but maybe even some of our, our listeners will try it out. It, it's really interesting, and and the thing I, I just want to double down on what you just said there is that when you have feedback like that in in a group, the themes start to emerge, and you don't get that unless you have the courage to to do something like that. Something else I wanted to highlight, maybe get you to talk about a bit, and then we're going to pivot to some other portions of the book here before we have some some questions. Um, it has to be that the, the person at the top has to be courageous enough to accept the feedback. And there are plenty of stories that you highlight in the book where Reed actually gets feedback and he's not just accepting of it, he's grateful for it. There's one in particular I want you to highlight where he was very dismissive in a meeting and he got called out on it. That's right. So um, this is actually, I think, probably the most important thing for any leader who wants to create a culture of candor. You know, don't start by focusing on getting uh, your, your managers to give feedback to their employees. Focus on getting people to give feedback to you and yep. to your managers, because yep. once the feedback goes up, then the rest is easy. And of course, the upward feedback is the most important. Right. I mean, if a lower level person has a blind spot, it's likely the manager or someone else is going to tell them. But when you get to the top of the organization, there's no one telling that person anymore about yeah. those serious blind spots that they have. So right. um, Reed solicits feedback frequently. And when he receives that, he acts gleeful. Right? Um, he really, he celebrates it. And I think every time I met with him, he was showing me an email of some courageous individual in the company who dared to tell him something that he should be doing differently, right? Yeah. And um, they also, I mean, all managers at Netflix, from my perspective, seem to share their 360s openly with their employees, especially what they need to work on so that employees can see, you know, this isn't something to be ashamed of, right? We all have things that we're working on. And if we courageous to give that feedback, that'll be really, um, that'll be really appreciative. So the story that you're talking about, but I actually, you know, there's many, many stories like that. There are, yeah. With Reed was one employee who was, I think five levels below him who felt that he was being dismissive and sarcastic with the head of human resources, Patty McCord at the time in a meeting. And she went home that evening and she remembered what you said earlier, Tim, you know, at Netflix, it's disloyal to not get to have feedback that you could give to somebody that could help them 
or help the organization and to choose not to give it. So she sat down and she wrote an email to this CEO saying, dear Reed, I hope you don't mind, but I had some feedback for you. And I know you're really trying to encourage people at lower levels to speak up, but the way you you spoke to, to Patty today, that made me feel like I don't think I want to speak up in future meetings. So then, you know, he immediately sent an email back. Thank you so much for your courage. And, you know, then talked about it to a lot of people. So as managers, we really need to start there. Right. Yeah. Uh, modeling that behavior is, is really important. Let's pivot to um, quickly on transparency, because one of the other values you talk about in, in the, uh, in the book is, is essentially opening the books and being really transparent with people. So the themes are if, as, as I've sort of, we're, we're pulling this together here. So you have talent density, really amazing people to keep them amazing. You have to have a culture of candor. And if you know, you have to demonstrate it seems to me, as we're talking about opening the books, there's this feeling that from read on down, you have to demonstrate trust mm-hmm. with employees consistently. Is that fair to say? Talk a little bit about the, the principle of opening the books at Netflix. Yeah, well, I love this. This is actually, I think, my favorite learning from all of the research that I've done because I've never met a manager who didn't say that he believed in organizational transparency. Right. (laughs) I mean, everyone thinks that's like a no-brainer. But I can tell you if you really take it to... um, to like mean, you really mean it, it's not a no brainer. And a yeah. lot of the things that Reed is doing at his organization in, uh, you know, just speak volumes to that. So for example, Netflix is the only company that is publicly traded that I'm aware of that is publicly traded on the stock exchange where they tell their employees before the financial data is released, um, what their, what their financial data is. For yeah. The what their company. earnings are going to be. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's considered, of course, reckless at most companies to do something like that. But Reed feels that anyone who works at the company should feel like that's my company. So I know before others know. Right. Uh, And then he did all sorts of crazy things. I mean, I told that story in the book about how early on uh, Reed and I were working on a chapter and I wrote like just a draft and I sent it to him for feedback. And the next week I was in Amsterdam interviewing one of the Netflix employees. And he said, Oh, that point you made in that chapter. And I was like, what? And he saw my puzzle and he said, Oh yeah, Reed sent that chapter out to all of us. Yeah. All 700 managers. (laughs) I said to all employees. He said, no, no, just to the top 700 managers. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that's what the kind of thing Reed does. He just makes these like kind of knee jerk um, symbols of I'm an open book, right? I just open up and I show you everything that we have going on here. And then employees feel flooded with these feelings of, wow, my manager, my boss, my company, they trust me. And that leads me to really try to behave as responsibly as possible, right? So that transparency leading to responsibility. The book is No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. Check it out when you get a chance. You're not going anywhere, are you? Andy Cross and Ron Gross are coming back with a couple of stocks you just might want to put on your watch list. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Leaves are falling all around. Time, I was on my way. Thanks to you, I 
People on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Guys, last year, Fiat Chrysler announced it was merging with PSA Group, the parent company of Peugeot. And this week, the combined automaker got a new ticker symbol to go with the new company name, Stellantis. <laughs> the company says the word Stellantis is derived from the Latin term meaning to brighten with stars. It started uh. trading this week under the ticker symbol STLA. Jason Moser, ask your doctor if Stellantis is right for you. <laughs> you I, I, this is a business that has iconic <laughs> brands under the, the umbrella of the parent company. Fiat, Maserati, Alfa Romeo, Jeep. Why are they going with something like Stellantis? You know, Latin is is such it, it's it's a root for so many beautiful languages. Sometimes you really just got to know when to pivot and go the other direction. I just want to be one time in the room where where the the company, the advertising company, is pitching the names, and they're like, "We got three choices for you guys." <laughs> I just want to just want to see how that that meeting goes. And again, they should have just stuck with some version of Fiat Chrysler PSA. But anyway, <laughs> our email address is radio at fool.com. Got a question from Ronald in Arizona. He writes, I'm 40 years old with probably 30 plus years till retirement. I'm in the growth part of my investing life, but with millions of other people retiring or planning to retire soon, would using part of my portfolio to invest in strong dividend paying companies be smart? I assume that as the retired and soon-to-be-retired people start moving their money into these safer investments, that would cause more demand for the stocks. Am I thinking too much or not enough? I love the way he framed it at the end there, Ron. I wouldn't try. I wouldn't buy these companies based on the thesis that future retirees are going to bid these stock prices up, which which actually may occur. But I don't like to think about that. Again, I like to think of individual companies that you're happy to own for the long term. Um, for a 30-year time horizon investor, um, owning some dividend stocks and some growth stocks, the combination of both is fine. Don't just focus on yield, though. Remember, it's always about total return, how much an appreciation plus yield is a company going to give you. And I think a bias towards growth for a 30-year time horizon probably makes sense. Um, as long as you can handle the the, the relative risk uh, associated with growth, growth too many um, dividend stocks might be a little conservative for someone with that time horizon. Would it be a bad idea to start with a list of dividend aristocrats and go from there? It would not. Those are typically wonderful companies with 25-year track records of increasing dividends, and it's it's a great pond to fish in. Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Well, Chris, you know I spend much of my time on the road towards Flavortown. Shout out, Guy Fieri, <laughs> Triple D Nation. Uh, listen, next week, McCormick uh, earnings will be out. Ticker MKC 
and I really just want to get get an update on what they see coming up here for 2021. And we look back to the last quarter they reported, third quarter, there was a passage on the call that really summed it up, this significant shift to consumers eating more at home. They feel that shift is persisting long enough that it's become a habit. That's great for McCormick shareholders. Uh, there has been some slight weakness in flavor solutions to be expected with restaurants in their current state. Uh, and they are making some investments in capacity this year. We should see margins in the fourth quarter a little bit crimped because of that. But I also want to make note that that quarter ago, they said they were in business, open for business in the acquisition department. Lo and behold, they have acquired Cholula, Chris, our favorite, one of our favorite hot sauces out there. $800 million all-cash deal, valued the company at around 25 times adjusted to EBITDA. So, I'll be interested to see how enthusiastic they are for bringing that brand into their portfolio. Dan Boyd, question about McCormick? Not this time, Chris. More of a comment. <laughs> it's the least spicy take in Motley Fool universe when Jason Moser is getting hyped about McCormick stock. <laughs> but you're you're someone who likes his food spicy, aren't you, Dan? Uh, absolutely. I listen. I'm all for flavor and spice. I just wish Jason would pick a new favorite stock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ron Gross, what are you looking at this week? How about Schrodinger? S D G R or Schrodinger? Um, I actually have never heard of this company until recently, until I started to dig in a bit. They develop software that speeds up the drug discovery process. They collaborate with other pharmaceutical companies to bring new drugs to market. They've got five compounds in development right now. They went public back in early 2020 at $17 per share. Stock now is at 94. So they've had a nice little run so far. Growing fast, great. Margins not profitable yet, but they're getting close. I want to understand that a little more. Co-founders are still involved. Big shareholders: Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, D.E. Shaw, a company called Deerfield Management. It seems really, really interesting to me. So I've got to do much more work on this, but but I'm going to dig in. Dan, question about Schrodinger? Absolutely, Chris Ron. If you don't get a quote for Schrodinger's stock price, does it go up? Or down? <laughs> I'm not even sure I understand Whoa. the question. Is that like a tree falls in a forest? Do you do you hear it or not? Uh, it's I, you know I was worried that a Schrodinger joke might be a little too highbrow for you, and uh, I guess oh, I was I'm right. sorry. Your Schrodinger's cat is what you're referring to. The thought experiment. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Named after the Austrian physicist who was born in the 1800s. Perhaps that's what you're talking about. <laughs> Somebody's got the Wikipedia article open right now. <laughs> Dan, two very different businesses. What would you like to add to your watch list? Uh, I'm going to go with McCormick here. I know I'm give, giving Jason some flack for it being his favorite stock, but it is a very good company with great products. Love it. I just want to remind the dozens of listeners that uh, we call this Stocks on Our Radar for a reason. And uh, I think Ron <laughs> illuminated that wonderfully when he led with, I never heard of this company until two weeks ago. So, again, <laughs> this is a radar two, two weeks would be generous. Jason Moser, Ron Gross, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Thank Chris. You. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.